Chapter Eleven of Seven Keys to Baldpate. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynn Thompson. Seven Keys to Baldpate by Earl Der Biggers. Chapter Eleven. A Falsehood Under the Palms. Make me a willow cabin at your gate, quoted Mr. Magee, looking at the hermit's shack with interest. Hmm, replied Miss Norton. Thus beautiful sentiments frequently fare, even at the hands of the most beautiful. Mr. Magee abandoned his project of completing the speech. The door of the hermit's abode opened before Mr. Max's masterful knock, and the bearded little man appeared on the threshold. He was clad in a purple dressing-gown that suggested some woman had picked it. Surely no man could have fallen victim to that riot of colour. "'Come in,' said the hermit, in a tone so colourless, it called added attention to the gown. "'Miss, you have the chair. You'll have to be contented with that soap-box Davenport, gentlemen.' "'Well?' He stood facing them in the middle of his hermitage. With curious eyes they examined its architecture. Exiled hands had built it of poles and clay and a reliable brand of roofing in the largest room where they sat were chairs a table and a bookshelf hammered together from stray boards Furniture midway between that in a hut on a desert isle and that of a home made happy from the back pages of a woman's magazine On the wall were various posters that defined the hermit's taste in art as inflammatory bold arresting through one door at the rear they caught a glimpse of a tiny kitchen through another the white covering of a hall-room cot could be seen well repeated mr peters i suppose you're a delegation so to speak a cold unfeeling word objected mr magee we have come to plead began miss norton turning her eyes at their full candle power on the hermit's bearded face I beg pardon miss interrupted mr. Peters, but it ain't any use I've thought it all out in the night watches as the poet says I came up here to be alone I can't be a hermit and a cook too. I can't and be true to myself No, you'll have to accept my resignation and take effect at once He sat down on an uncertain chair and regarded them sorrowfully His long well-shaped fingers clutched the cord of the purple gown it isn't as though we were asking you to give up the hermit business for good Argued McGee. It's just for a short time. Maybe only a few days. I should think you should welcome the diversion Mr. Peters shook his head vigorously the brown curls waved flippantly about his shoulders My instincts he replied are away from the crowd. I explained that to you when we first met mr. McGee any man commented mr. Max ought to be able to strangle his instincts for a good salary payable in advance You come here said the hermit with annoyance and you bring with you the sentiments of the outside world The world I have forsworn don't do it. I ask you I Don't get you reflected mr. Max. No pal. I don't quite grab this hermit game It ain't human nature. I say Way up here miles from the little brass rail and the sporting extra and other things that make life worth living. It's beyond me 
I'm not asking your approval replied the hermit all I ask is to be let alone Let me speak said miss Norton Mr. Peters and I have been friends you might say for three years It was three years ago. My awed eyes first fell upon him selling his postcards at the inn He was to me then the true romance the man to whom the world means nothing without a certain woman at his side that is what he has meant to all the girls who came to Baldpate. He isn't going to shatter my ideal of him. He isn't going to refuse a lady in distress. You will come for just a little while, won't you, Mr. Peters? But Peters shook his head again. I dislike women as a sex, he said, but I've always been gentle and easy with isolated examples of em. It ain't my style to turn em down, but this is asking too much. I'm sorry, but I got to be true to my oath. I got to be a hermit Maybe sneered mr. Max. He's got good reason for being a hermit Maybe there's brass buttons and blue uniforms mixed up in it You come from a great world of suspicion answered the hermit turning reproving eyes upon him Your talk is natural. It goes with the life you lead But it isn't true and mr. Max is the last who should insinuate rebuked mr. McGee why only last night he denounced suspicion and bemoaned the fact that there is so much of it in the world Well, he might replied the hermit suspicion is the keynote of modern life especially in New York He drew the purple dressing gown closer about his plump form I remember the last time I was in the big town seeing a crowd of men in the grill room of the Hoffman house one of them long lean like an eel stooped down and whispered in the ear of a little fellow with a diamond horseshoe desecrating his haberdashery and pointing to another man nearby no i won't says the man with the diamonds i don't introduce nobody to nobody let every man play his own game i say that's new york that's the essence of the town i introduce nobody to nobody it seems odd remarked mr. McGee to hear you speak of the time you walked on pavements I haven't always been on board Pate mountain replied the hermit once I too paid taxes and wore a derby hat and sat in barbers chairs Yes, I sat in them in many towns in many corners of this little round globe But that's all over now The three visitors gazed at mr. Peters with a new interest New York said mr. Max softly as a better man might have spoken the name of the girl he loved It's a great little Christmas tree the candles are always burning and the tinsel presents always look good to me The hermit's eyes strayed far away down the mountain and beyond New York said he and his tone was that in which Max had said the words a Great little Christmas tree it is with fine presents for the reaching Sometimes at night here. I see it as it was four years ago. I see the candles lit on the great white way I hear the elevated roar and the newsboys shout and diamond Jim Brady applauding at a musical comedy's first night New York Mr. Max rose pompously and pointed a yellow finger at the hermit of Baldpate Mountain. I Got you he cried in triumph. I'm wise you want to go back a half-hearted smile crossed the visible portion of the hermit's face 
I guess I'm about the poorest liar in the world, he said. I never got away with but one lie in my life, and that was only for a little while. It was a masterpiece while it lasted, too, but it was my only hit as a liar. Usually I fail, as I have failed now. I lied when I said I couldn't cook for you, because I had to be true to my hermit's oath. That isn't the reason. I'm afraid. Afraid? echoed Mr. McGee. Scared, said Mr. Peters, of temptation. Your seventh son of a seventh son friend here has read my mind. Okay, I want to go back. Not in the summer when the inn blazes like Broadway every evening And I can sit here and listen to the latest comic opera tunes come drifting up from the casino And go down and mingle with the muslin brigade any time I want And see the sympathetic look in their eyes as they buy my postals It ain't then I want to go back It's when fall comes and the trees on the mountain are bare And Quimby locks up the inn and there's only the wind and me on the mountain and then I get the fever. I haven't the postcard trade to think of. So I think of Ellen and New York. She's my wife. New York, it's my town. That's why I can't come among you to cook. It'd be leading me into temptation greater than I could stand. I'd hear your talk, and like as not when you went away, I'd shave off this beard and burn the manuscript of woman and go down into the marts of trade. Last night, I walked the floor till two. I can't stand such temptation. Mr. Peters's auditors regarded him in silence. He rose and moved towards the kitchen door. Now you understand how it is, he said. Perhaps you will go and leave me to my baking. One minute, objected Mr. McGee. You spoke of one lie, your masterpiece. We must hear about that. Yes, spin the yarn, pal, requested Mr. Mack. Well, said the hermit reluctantly, if you're quite comfortable, it ain't very short. Please, beamed Miss Norton. With a sigh, the hermit of Baldpate Mountain sank upon a most unsocial seat and drew his purple splendor close. It was like this, he began. Five years ago, I worked for a fruit company, and business sent me sliding along the edges of strange seas and picture book lands. I met little brown men, and listened to the soft swish of the banana growing, and had an orchestra seat at a revolution or two. Don't look for a magazine story about overthrown tyrants or anything like that. It's just a quiet little lie I'm speaking of, told on a quiet little afternoon, by the sands of a sea as blue as Baldpate Inn must have been this morning, when I didn't show up with breakfast. Sitting on those yellow sands the afternoon I speak of, Wearing carpet slippers made for me by loving, so to speak, hands, I saw Alexander McMahon come along. He was tall and straight and young and free, and I envied him, for even in those days my figure would never have done in a clothing advertisement, owing to the heritage of too many table d'hote about the middle. Well, McMahon sat at my side, and little by little, with the sea washing sad light nearby, I got from him the story of his exile and why. I don't need to tell you it was woman had sent him off for the equator. This one's name was Marie, I think, and she worked at a lunch counter in Kansas City. From the young man's bill of fare description of her, I gathered that she had cheeks like peaches and cream, and a heart like a lunch counter doughnut, which is hard. 
she cast you off i asked she threw me down said he well it seems he'd bought a ticket for that loud colored country where i met him and come down there to forget i could buy the ticket he said as soon as i learned how to pronounce the name of this town but i can't forget i've tried it's hopeless and he sat there looking like a man whose best friend has died owing him money i won't go into his emotions mr bland up at the inn is suffering them at the present moment i'm told they're unimportant i'll hurry on to the lie i simply say he was sorrowful and it seemed to me a crime what with the sun so bright and the sea so blue and the world so full of a number of things yes it certainly was a crime and I decided he had to be cheered up at any cost. How? I thought a while, gazing up at the sky, and then it came to me, the lie, the glorious lie, and I told it. The hermit looked in defiance round the listening circle. You're chuck full of sorrow now, I said to McMahon, but it won't last long, he shook his head. Nonsense, I told him. Look at me. Do you see me doing a heart-bowed-down act under the palms? Do you find anything but joy in my face? And he couldn't, the lie unfolding itself in such splendor to me. You, he asked. Me, I said. Ten years ago, I was where you are today. A woman had spoke to me as Mabel or Marie or what was it spoke to you. I could see I had the boy interested. I unfolded my story as it occurred to me at the moment yes said i ten years ago i saw her first dancing as a butterfly dances from flower to flower dancing on the stage a fairy sprite i loved her worshipped her it could never be there in the dark of the wings she told me so and she shed a tear a sweet tear of sorrow at parting i went to my room i told mcmahon with a lot of timetables and steamship books bright red books the color came off on my eager hands i picked out a country and sailed away like you i thought i could never be happy never even smile again look at me he looked i guess my face radiated bliss the idea was so lovely he was impressed i could see it i'm supremely happy i told him i am my own master I wander where I will no woman tells me my hour for going out or my hour for coming in I wander for company I have her picture as I saw her last with twinkling feet that never touched earth as the spirit moves I go You can move the memory of a woman in a flash my boy But it takes two months to get the real article started and then like as not she's forgot everything of importance ever thought of that you should you're going to be happy as I am study me reflect I waved my carpet slippered feet toward the palms I had certainly made an impression on Alexander McMahon As we walked back over the sands and grass-grown sheets to the hotel his heart got away from that Cupid's lunch counter And he was almost cheerful. I was gay to the last but as I parted from him my own heart sank I knew I had to go back to her and that she would probably give me a scolding about the carpet slippers i parted from mcmahon with a last word of cheer then i went to the ship to her my wife that was the lie you understand she traveled everywhere with me she never trusted me
We were due to sail that night, and I was glad, for I worried some over what I had done. Suppose my wife and Alexander McMahon should meet. An estimable woman, but large, determined, little suggesting the butterfly of the footlights I married long before. We had a bad session over the carpet slippers. The boat was ready to sail. When McMahon came aboard, he carried a bag and his face shone. She sent for me, he said. Marie wants me. I got a letter from my brother. I'll blow into Kansas like a cyclone and claim her. I was paralyzed. At that minute, a large black figure appeared on deck. It headed for me. Jake, it says. You sat up long enough. Go below now. McMahon's face was terrible. I saw it was all up. I lied, McMahon. I explained. The idea just came to me. It fascinated me, and I lied. She did turn me down, there in the wings, and she shed that tear I spoke of, too. But when I was looking over the railroad folders, she sent for me. I went on the wings of love. It was two blocks, but I went on the wings of love. We've been married twenty years. Forgive me, McMahon. McMahon turned around. He picked up the bag. I asked where he was going. Ashore, he said, to think. I may go back to Kansas City. I may. But I'll just think a bit first. And he climbed into the ship's boat. I never saw him again. The hermit paused and gazed dreamily into space. That, he said, was my one great lie, my masterpiece. A year afterward, I came up here on the mountains to be a hermit. As a result of it? asked Miss Norton. Yes, answered Mr. Peters. I told the story to a friend. I thought he was a friend. So he was, but married. My wife got to hear of it. So you denied my existence, she said. As a joke, I told her. The joke's on you, she says. That was the end. She went her way, and I went mine. I'd just unanimously gone her way so long. I was a little dazed at first with my freedom. After fighting for a living alone for a time, I came up here. It's cheap. I get the solitude I need for my book. Not long ago, I heard I could go back to her if I apologized. Stick to your guns, advised Mr. Max. I'm trying to, Mr. Peters replied, but it's lonesome here in winter, and at Christmas in particular. This dressing gown was a Christmas present from Ellen. She picked it. Pretty, ain't it? You see why I can't come down and cook for you. I might get the fever for society and shave and go to Brooklyn, where she's living with her sister. But, said Mr. McGee, we're in an awful fix. You've put us there. Mr. Peters, as a man of honor, I appeal to you. Your sense of fairness must tell you my appeal is just. Risk it one more day, and I'll have a cook sent up from the village. Just one day. There's no danger in that. Surely you can resist temptation one little day. A man of your character. Miss Norton rose and stood before Mr. Peters. She fixed him with her eyes, eyes into which no man could gaze and go his way unmoved. Just one tiny day, she pleaded. Mr. Peters sighed. He rose. I'm a fool, he said. I can't help it. I'll take chances on another day though nobody knows where it'll lead. Brooklyn, maybe, whispered Lou Max to McGee in mock horror. 
the hermit donned his coat attended to a few household duties and led the delegation outside dolefully he locked the door of his shack the four started down the mountain back to baldpate with our cook said mr mcgee into the girl's ear i know now how caesar felt when he rode through rome with his ex-foes festooned about his chariot wheels mr max again chose the rear triumphantly escorting mr peters as mr mcgee and the girl swung into the lead the former was moved to recur to the topic he had handled so amateurishly a short time before i'll make you believe in me yet he said she did not turn her head the moment we reach the inn he went on i shall come to you with the package of money in my hand then you'll believe i want to help you tell me you'll believe then very likely i shall answered the girl without interest if you really intend to give me that money no one must know about it no one shall know he answered but you and me they walked on in silence then shyly the girl turned her head almost oh, assuredly she was desirable clumsy as had been his declaration mr mcgee resolved to stick to it through eternity i'm sorry i spoke as i did she said will you forgive me forgive you he cried why i and now she interrupted let us talk of other things of ships and shoes and sealing wax all the topics in the world he replied can lead to but one with me ships asked the girl for honeymoons he suggested shoes in some circles of society i believe they are flung at bridal parties and sealing wax on the license isn't it he queried i'll not try you on cabbage and kings laughed the girl please oh please don't fail me you won't will you her face was serious you see it means so very much to me fail you cried mcgee i'd hardly do that now in ten minutes that package will be in your hands along with my fate my lady i shall be so relieved she turned her face away there was a faint flush in the cheek towards mr mcgee and happy she whispered under her breath then they were at the great front door of baldpate inn end of chapter 11